just, if I could speak to you as a pastor for a moment, you have this, this advert in your bulletins regarding the save the dates for the holiday service times. And I just, I'm not giving a general service announcement. You can read the English words and numbers. I just wanted to, I wanted to say this. We, we are going to constantly face as Christians a pressure to submit the church calendar to the secular calendar. We just are. We've talked about the sacred reality of the church calendar. And, and one of those primary things is just the significance of Sunday morning, right? We are gathered here when there's a lot of other things we could be doing. Uh, and our, and our, our, our younger families face this with their kids and soccer games or football games or basketball leagues and travel leagues, like really hard things to do. And, 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 and I, I don't have necessarily all the wisdom to say, here's exactly what you do, thus saith the Lord. No. And you also don't want to create this kind of legalism that's kind of easy to f- default into. But we do want to say that, man, there is something to be said for making our schedules fit around the Lord himself, and to, and to display that, embody that, not just our young families, but all of our families in the way that we do life together as the people of God. So I know it's going to be a tempting Christmas this year. Again, some of you may be out of town and traveling, seeing family, good, and God's blessing on that. But if you are around and you know that Christmas morning falls on a Sunday morning, it could be very tempting to have one eclipse the other. And I would just encourage you pastorally to use wisdom in that, to try to accommodate the two. But we try to accommodate that by both on Christmas Sunday and New Year's Day Sunday. So you actually use the growth hour slot. There there's, wouldn't have been growth hour anyway in those days, that, that middle hour for the time we do church. Which, I mean, if your kids are like my kids, it's a Christmas morning, they're not sleeping in. Right, 6 a.m., we're yelling at them, to, not yelling, but go back to bed till at least 7, right, which gives plenty of time to come to a 9.30 service, and we're done by 10.30, and that gives plenty of time for you to go to your family activities. So I just want to exhort you in that way. We will be leading up and kind of this climactic end to the Advent season on the Christmas Eve service with a beautiful worship on the Lord's Day on Christmas Day. And I just would love to see Santa bend the knee to the Savior, to be honest. Which in reality is we just saying every knee will confess that he is Lord. And to embody that in our families, biological, and to reflect that in our church family is significant. So those to me would be some precious Sundays when we all gather together as one service, knowing people will be gone and traveling in one venue to, to proclaim the Lord's name as his disciples. So I just want to plug that for you pastorally, not just in a scheduling way. Let me pray as we turn to the Lord's word this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for ministers of the gospel like our sister Vera, who for 16 years has served this church body in every corner of the building, and and not just our kids, but their families in so many ways. Thank you for so many others who are are, are throughout this moment, even now, serving in this body because they know that you are their king, and we are their brothers and sisters, and they want us, and they want you to to be praised. Father, help us now as we turn to your word in a lengthy 14th chapter of 1 Samuel to see what you want us to see to hear it and have it form us and shape us into the image of Christ. 
we pray in his name. Amen. Wouldn't you, know, wouldn't you love to know the will of God? Wouldn't you love to be able to gauge what that is, to determine what God wants, not just generally but specifically? When you look back, do you think of in years past, depending on your age, different stages of life, and pursuing what was God's will, what would he have for you, or your marriage, or your family, and your children, and your work? These kind of questions are regular, and they are important to us. And God's word is not strange to those things. It speaks into the will of God. And you might think that that wouldn't necessarily be the topic in 1 Samuel 14. If you were with us last week, you remember that this story of a little skirmish that began between the Philistines and Israel turned into an all-right preparation for war. And Israel picked a bit of a fight, and Philistines were going to give a bit of an answer, and they gathered together 30,000 chariots. That's just ridiculous number, like insurmountable. They had 6,000 horses beyond the numbers of their soldiers. And on top of that, to add a detail to it, the Philistines had long before worked out both economically and politically to be the only ones that can make the weapons. So they've disarmed their opponents, numbering only 600, right? Israel is, is, is scurrying like bugs under a log the moment they see the reality of this army. And the question that is left is, how will God care for his people? What is God going to do? Well, we stopped last week at the end of 13 and looked where the text took us. And now we get that answer. And to be honest with you, the text doesn't spend a ton of time just on the God work. It makes clear. Verse 23, it's in that first little paragraph in your notes. It's underlined for you, the Lord saved Israel that day. It wants you to see that. It, the Bible will continually train us to just know and believe that God is powerful and he can do what he will do. And he doesn't need us having weapons. We don't, we don't have blacksmiths to be able to victorious. He can take 600 men and defeat 30,000 chariots in the same way that Jesus can take a couple fish and bread and feed thousands. Like he can use little to do a lot because he is God and we are not. And he'll, is, the Bible's gonna want you to know that he can. But the, but the how... And the through whom, and in the what way, that's the part that's always hard to know. He can, but does he always answer every request that we have? Does he always answer it in the way that we would think? What are God's intentions? What's his will? Well, in, in response to this situation, you get nothing from King Saul until victory is clearly in hand. It is his son Jonathan, who, if you remember last time, was left undefined. This just this guy named Jonathan showed up, no name given to him, the son of King Saul, who responds with boldness and faith. And God gives him victory. The text doesn't spend a lot of time in all the how, other than saying basically God threw them into a whirlwind of confusion, and they defeated themselves, making clear it was always God who was the Redeemer. But the text wants, to look, wants us to look at the contrast between the Father and the Son, Jonathan and Saul. 
and to reveal two different responses to the way God works in our lives, to the way the will of God is looked for and utilized. And that's the first thing I want to show us this morning, that the text contrasts the two ways Christians might seek and respond to the will of God. Let's start with Jonathan. My summary would be that he reflects the person who seeks the will of God. Look at verse 6. I, I put the important sections of the text for you because it was a very long text. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, imagine this suggestion, right? You've got 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, and hordes of soldiers. And then the son of the king says, hey, armor carrier, I got a great idea. Let's head over there. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, that might sound like that's a bit of a polemical way of speaking, like kind of ripping on them, but I wonder if the word uncircumcised is designated something. That means these people are not the covenant people of God. And so I wonder if Jonathan's statement is saying, we are God's people. God has covenanted with us. We have to know that the God who covenanted with his people will care for them. In fact, in God's promise to our forefathers, he said he would care for us. He would provide what we need. We've seen example of that over and over again. Arm bearer, let's go. Because I'm sure that in some way, God will protect his people. Notice the boldness of faith. But he qualifies it there in verse 6 in an important way, and I underlined it for you. After saying, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, he adds, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Note two things there. He has the right theology that is true about God. He is unstoppable. But what Jonathan admits, and it's carefully detailed in the text for us, is that he doesn't exactly know how. He can't claim that. He can claim what clearly belongs to God, all power, all authority, all ability, full stop, there it is. But he cannot claim that that's exactly what God intends to do in this moment. He holds it out loosely. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Well, his friend, the armor bearer, agrees to go with him. And then in verse 8, in the text I have in your notes for you, then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. Risky move. Notice the boldness and the faith. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. Jonathan makes a decision and he submits it to the will of God. He's moving in a direction that seems to align with God and his purposes. Like, remember that word uncircumcised gives us this clue and, and the hesitant language of it may be that. Like, this, this is what God will ultimately do. God will ultimately protect his people. Remember what Jesus taught about the church? 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That tells you a lot. You don't necessarily know the how. You don't know exactly what that's going to look like. That doesn't mean that churches won't suffer or there won't be losses, so to speak. But it just means that the ultimate victory is guaranteed. So Jonathan has that in mind. And he tries to align himself with God and his purposes, even though he doesn't know the detail. He knows God, but not his specific plan. He heads in the right direction. I had to go to a meeting in Verona, Wisconsin, and I had no clue where Verona was, but I had a pretty good idea where Wisconsin is. And I'm not a directional guy, as my family reminds me weekly. And I couldn't get my GPS to work for me, so I just simply headed north, knowing full well, not south, north, Knowing full well that eventually when my phone connected to some cell tower somewhere, I would be heading in the right direction. I didn't know that Verona was bordering Madison, and it was pretty simple once I saw the big picture. But I just headed in the right direction without knowing all the details. So much of the Christian life is just that. We generally know what God requires or what He desires, or by His nature what it looks like to respond appropriately, but we don't always know the details. Jonathan was simply seeking the way God could and usually works. And in verse 23, it declares it outright. So the Lord saved Israel that day. It could have looked like Jonathan did a lot of amazing things and he could be applauded, but it was the Lord who saved Israel that day. And Jonathan was aligning himself to him. Now, the last half of our passage is the example of Saul. Saul, unlike Jonathan, reflects the person who schemes around the will of God. The battle's going great. Saul's not even mentioned until this thing is clearly in hand. Like, through the initiation of Jonathan, but the demonstration of God's power, like the Philistines are literally killing themselves. And Saul gets pretty confident with that and then wants to enact his will, which he inappropriately aligns with God. I have in your notes there, starting in verse 24, that the battle was ongoing, though clearly in hand, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. They were exhausted. Yet even still, Saul had laid an oath on the people. That's actually a big move. A royal oath subsumes the will of God into his will. It even calls like death on anyone who breaks it. Meaning he's spoken a way that only God can speak. He says, cursed be the man who eats food until the evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Notice how many eyes is there. Remember Jonathan? It may be that the Lord will work for us. Saul I want to be avenged. He's trying to utilize God's will and purposes for his own agenda. So he makes that oath, and the text says that none of the people had tasted food. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. That's just giving a little glimpse of God's common grace, of the sweet taste that satisfies. He did nothing wrong according to the will of God. 
but much wrong according to the will of his father. Saul, of course, in the meantime, verse 37, is trying to find the will of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Verse, 20, verse sorry, 37 says, will you give them into my hand? But notice what the end of verse 37 says. But God did not answer him that day. God is silent. He's not responding to the inappropriate demands of an improper king. And Saul thinks something's wrong. He blames the people for what they're going to do. He threatens to kill anyone so that God may be appeased when he himself was the problem. He finds out that he literally declared a death sentence to his own son who hadn't even heard the oath. And who stands in his defense? Verse 45 says it was the people. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. Or we would say absolutely not. As the Lord lives, notice they make a counter oath. They rebuke the oath of the king and make a counter oath. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. Note that phrase or that word with God. It didn't say he has worked for God. It says he has worked with with God. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now, I just want to spend the rest of our time fleshing out this topic of the will of God from this text for us today. And here's what I would want to say as we think about this biblically. Christians are expected to obey God's revealed will and pursue wisely God's hidden will for their lives. Now, those two categories, revealed will and hidden will, might sound strange, but they come from Scripture. Look at Deuteronomy 29, 29 in your notes. God wants us to know exactly our pay grade. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So note those categories that give us lenses for thinking about the way we make decisions and the way we engage in the world as Christians. God's revealed will and God's secret or hidden will. His revealed will, will is what God has already made known that we are to follow. How does he make this known? In Scripture. These are things we know in advance and are commanded to obey. There's many of those things. Usually, though, Christians are dissatisfied with that will of God and want to get to the hidden or secret. Yet there is so much of life and duty, and practice, and family, and church, that has already been revealed. The revealed will of God is rooted in the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is clear in the most important things. Scripture as a whole is sufficient for our needs of divine guidance. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us the most important thing. But then from Deuteronomy 29, we can see that statement regarding the secret things which belong 
to the Lord our God, not to us. They don't belong to us or our children. They belong to the Lord. This is God's hidden will. What God will bring about that is not foretold or revealed. If God's revealed will is given in Scripture, God's hidden will is revealed in retrospect. I couldn't have known in August of 1993 that this brunette sitting near me, Laura Ruth Brown, was to be my wife. I wouldn't have minded even that very first time. Didn't ask her in that moment. Was hoping sometime after, but I couldn't have known that by that same time in 1999, we'd be married, and now 23 years later, still are. I know now my God's will for me with my wife is revealed. I couldn't have known exactly the who, but I know now. But even then, the revealed will told me a lot about the kind of person I was supposed to be that I was supposed to look for, and the kind of husband I'm supposed to be now. Even if in August of 93, I, could, I would have had no clue who that person specifically was. The hidden will of God is revealed in retrospect. We know in retrospect and are expected to accept and respect God's reign over us. And that includes not just the good things, but the bad things. That we're praying for a brother like Tim Otz, who starts chemo, second treatment of chemo again tomorrow. That, that's not a revealed will. There was nothing that told him that 10 years ago. But in God's secret things belong to our Lord. This is part of his life. But his revealed will would be, how do we deal with cancer? Who is the great physician? How do we let our bodies be an offering to the Lord? How do we as a church pray for one another and support one another? We could have planned none of that even two years ago. But now, in light of the retrospect hidden will being made known, the revealed will of God gives us a lot of things to do. Notice that it may be that Jonathan said, that just sounds like the book of James. I want to end by looking at this text with you, which speaks about the will of God. James 4, 13 17. In fact, I think these verses give a couple do nots and then a couple do's regarding the will of God. First, the do nots, verses 13 and 14. If you have your notes, look at these. This is a good text for all of us, no matter where you are in your life. James says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Think of this question. What is your life? And in case you didn't have an answer, God will give it to you. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. By mid-morning when the sun comes up, you are gone. Now that's perspective. Notice that text. That's perspective. What are the do nots of verses 13 and 14? One would be this. Do not make plans as if your lives are your own. Or as if you can set the agenda for your lives. Do not. If you, if you do that, you don't even know who you are. 
Here's a second do not. Don't assume you have any control over the outcome of your individual pursuits or even your life as a whole. Think of it this way. Your life may end literally 20 minutes after this service. You have no idea what could happen to you or something internally in your body or a car accident on the way to lunch. You know not, You cannot control those things because you are a mist. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you don't make plans, as verses 15 to 17 will tell us, but you make them with this perspective. I was talking to Steve Scherer last week. If you don't know Steve and Carolyn Scherer, you should meet them. They have been part of this church for, my guess, well over 30 years. Carolyn, for a quarter of a century, served here in our office on staff and they are a gift to this body and this community and have been for years. Steve was telling me a story about when he was talking with his 16-year-old son, Matt, the week before he went on a business trip, and he had a conversation with Matt about something in hockey practice or a hockey game and felt like he didn't, didn't say it the way he wanted to to his son, and so before he left on that business trip the next day, he said to his son, said, hey, Matt, I'm sorry. I'm proud of what you're doing. You're working hard. And Steve said to me last week, right after growth hour, standing in fellowship hall, he says he didn't realize it would be the last words he would say to his son. At 16 years old, as a student from Honaniga High School, coming home right on Elevator Road, their car was hit, I believe, by a garbage truck, and he was killed instantly. 16. Here's what Steve said to me last week. I'm so glad. Now my last words to my son, because I was proud of him. You are a mist. You're a mist. What is your life? You have no control. Think of what we talked about earlier or last week about helicopter parents and lawnmower parents. You can't protect your kids. You can't shelter them from the brokenness of this world. What is your life? Do not assume you have control over the outcome of your individual pursuits or even your life. Like, do not forget who you are and who God is. In case we're left with a lot of do nots, verses 15 to 17 give us some do's. Instead, I, I love that little pastoral transition. Thank you, Lord. Tell me what, uh, I've heard what not to do. What am I to do? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. It sounds like Saul. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or her it is sin. What are some of these do's? Make all your plans with the posture of humility and dependence. It may be that the Lord will work for us. That statement, as the Lord, or if the Lord wills, might just be a good habit of speech. I was leaving men's breakfast yesterday morning. I was talking to Ed Kipp, who was sitting over here at first service, and I said, I'll see you tomorrow. And just generally and out of long-standing Christian habit, he goes, if the Lord wills. And I immediately thought of the sermon we'd be talking about today. And that is true. 
I did see Ed Kipp today, but that was in the Lord's hands. And even if it's not something you just say as if it's some real ritual, it becomes a posture. It's just as a posture, if the Lord wills. Here's another do. Make no claims on your plans and especially your accomplishments, for all such arrogance is evil. God is so gracious. And how many of our plans have been twisted and redirected? How many of you would say, man, I thought I was going to do this, and the Lord completely adjusted what I was going to do? And probably all of us could say that in almost every stage of our lives, or the lives of our children or grandchildren, because we didn't know. Remember, Jonathan, it may be you're heading north, and you're trying to figure out exactly where you're supposed to go, and the Lord will reveal it in due course. So you have open hands with a level of intentionality from what has already been revealed, but you have open hands. Maybe we could even say this, and I think that this verse 17 in James 4 says this, when a plan is laid out for you in Scripture, that is when God's revealed will is made known, you must put it on your calendar and do it. People always talk about wanting to know the will of God. Do you know how much of the will of God we do know? Again, not legalistically, but when I exhort you, brothers and sisters, to make Sunday morning important as an embodied practice of being Christian, even when it bumps into Christmas Day, I'm just fleshing out statements like, do not neglect to gather together as some of you are in the habit of doing, Hebrews. Or the importance of worshiping the Lord and singing together or ministering to one another, or even just think of this, like how many people Christmas Day might not even have something to do, and Christmas morning in the gathered body is their family. They don't have seven children and 30 grandchildren and siblings all around. They're lonely. Maybe that's why you, they're coming to lunch with you after church with your family. You don't know what the Lord may do. It may be that. But the revealed will of God is the people gathered together, worshiping the king on the Lord's day. Again, not a legalism, not a moralism, not a pharisaical thing, but a posture of dependence and worship. So let me give you a test case. How about a new job? You're, you've got a family. You've, uh, maybe this is the wife, or maybe it's the husband. It could be any combination of the two, but you've got a family you're staked in a place. You've got financial questions to ask. Maybe it's a different location, etc. What's the will of God? Well, there's probably not going to be an angelic being in your backyard by the bird feeder telling you what to do. So what would be biblical wisdom in regard to this? Well, here's some questions we could ask that balances the revealed will and the hidden will of God. Number one, does this job cause me to disobey God's revealed will in Scripture? Is there anything in this job or the things the job would make me do that would clearly be against what God has already made known? Like, is the job inappropriate? Is the institution something I shouldn't be aligned? Would it cause me to cheat or lie or steal? Would it be corrosive to my soul or my body or wound my family in ways that would force me to not be faithful to what God has told me to do. That would be explicit. Reveal, the revealed will of God being explicitly guiding such a decision. 
But there's implicit things, things that you might not see. That's the second question. Have I asked my family, friends, a pastor, or others who know me for their insights and wisdom? Are the finances in my best interest, in my family's interest? Is the time, does it cause me to miss? Even things we might not think about, right? It might be a little bit more money, but it's less time caring for your family, being with your children, being part of corporate worship in the ministry of the church. Does it damage your body or soul in a way that you can't think about or see? Like you ask those questions. Help me to see wisdom, counsel. Third question, am I willing to accept what may come from this new job, unseen things I could not plan for? That is, will you obey God's revealed will if and when the situation changes or difficulties come? You know, that I think about that Laura Ruth Brown, Laura Ruth Brown girl I married back in 1999. Well, I remember standing before her father, the pastor, I said, in sickness and in health, Till death do we part. That sounds great at 24. But life happens. But God's revealed will has made something clear to me about that oath that I made to that woman in front of her dad, no less. Are you willing to accept what may come based upon your decision? And finally, can I hold this new job loosely Offering this decision and my life to the eternal God. Can I say what Jonathan said? It may be. Can I say what James teaches me to pray? If the Lord wills. Can I do that with everything? Heading north, looking for Verona, Wisconsin. Not knowing exactly where it is or how long it will take to get there, but I know north. So I head, because I know God. I know that I'm one of his covenant people, and he cares for me, and his revealed will has given me so much direction, even if I don't know the right place, but I live my life in a way like Jonathan that aligns with who God is and what God has already made known. And then with all the other details, and here's the hard part, American control freaks. Here you go, you ready? Here's the hard part. Amidst all of that, there's so much more I don't know. And then I just take my hands and say, if the Lord wills. Because my oldest son is 17 years old. And Stephen Carolyn's didn't make it that far. And there's no logical reason when all of us are missed. So I say with gratitude and trust and perseverance to the Lord that we sing to who gives and takes away as the Lord wills. And I trust and I lament and I try to live and align my life with a God who I know is good even when it doesn't feel like it. To seek the good, pleasing and perfect will of God, leaving the things that belong to him secretly his, but trusting and obeying the things he had made known to me with hands open wide before a very gracious king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you mold us even in these stories written long before our day. 
And help us to be like Jonathan, who with boldness and direction and knowledge of you and pursuant of the things that you have called him to holds loosely your perfect plans and provisions. Lord, we confess that we have not lived as if our life is a mist. We have not spoken in ways or been posturing in ways that acknowledge your complete control and our finitude. And help us, Father, to pray and to think and to act as the Lord wills, even when it's hard. Help us to obey your revealed will, to trust in you for the secret things of God, and to do so in a way that honors Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.